Hey guys, welcome to the 53rd edition of the Digital Kung Fu Show. Digital Kung Fu is something you should see. Videos and podcasts reveal the digital key. Digital disruption is something you should know. Conquer it and you will soon see your business grow. Answer all the questions. See the road ahead. Know the market strategies become a thoroughbred. Know the state of technology shared with someone new. And suddenly you will conceive a different point of view. All because it took the time for digital kung fu. This episode is brought to you by the Digital Health Score System. So who's it for? Well, it's for business executives or business owners. I've given it a try and I think it's pretty cool. Um, but basically what it allows you to do is to test and identify where your digital weaknesses are as a business. And so what's unique about it? Well, it uses a proprietary statistical data model to help you understand not only how digitally healthy your business is, but also how your business compares to competitors in your industry. Wouldn't that be awesome? So what do you have to do? Well, you have to go to digitalhealthscore.co.za and click the take the assessment button. And the assessment lasts about eight minutes. And the system uses um, this kind of like cool model at the back end to predict and assess where your weaknesses are. And these weaknesses kind of sit uh, across strategy, people, technical, or your ability to innovate as a company. So this is pretty cool stuff. So head on over to digitalhealthscore.co.za now to take your assessments. And remember that all your data is kept strictly confidential. So don't wait, guys. Get your digital grading now. Hey guys, welcome back to another cracking edition of the Digital Kung Fu Show. Our guest today is Rapper Leng Rabana. She is an entrepreneur, a thought leader, a speaker, a TEDx speaker. She is uh, just an awesome powerhouse of a woman who's really doing amazing things in the entrepreneurship and tech space. So to give you some idea as to who uh, she is, she was on the cover of Forbes Africa magazine before the age of 30, selected as a fast company maverick and named entrepreneur for the world by the World Entrepreneurship Forum and is largely sort of lauded, I guess, as a technology entrepreneur and a real force in this space. So we discuss at length her entrepreneurship journey from humble beginnings to uh, to today where she's on a global stage. Um, she's a media heavyweight and she really is just an awesome, awesome, awesome woman to get to know. So I'm incredibly grateful to have had the time with Rappeling uh, in this particular interview. So without further ado, guys, enter Rappeling Rabana. Hello, hustlers, and welcome back to another cracking edition of the Digital Kung Fu Show. The 53rd edition, so geez, those numbers keep climbing. So, um, But anyway, enough about me. I'm more excited to introduce you to our very special guest today, Rapilang. How are you? I am very good, Matt. How are you? <laughs> Is it Miss Rabana or Mrs.? Very much Miss. <laughs> uh, living the dream, eh? <laughs> yeah, me, myself, um, and I, and the co company, so yeah. <laughs> Where, where would you like to start? I mean, what's the, you, what's the other story that you would want to share with our listeners? Sure. Where do I start? I guess most of the time when um people want to hear a bit more about my journeys, I, I try to start from the beginning of how I think I landed up here. And it, I don't think it had anything to do with the typical um, ideas about it. I think a lot of the time when you think of someone being an entrepreneur, maybe they were really good at accounting or maths or 
they were wanted to start a business so that they can boss people around or tell people what to do and things like that. Um, and maybe they're good at sales. All of these things were not the case for me. I mean, I'm terrible at sales and things like that. And I, I would say that my process to arriving here was much more of a personal journey. Um, and I say that in this context of a more self-discovery, greater self-awareness and awareness of the world around me. And that's really what prompted me to decide to become an entrepreneur. So I think, um, I remember maybe my first sort of conscious moment where I was like started questioning how the world works. I probably was about 14 years old and um, we were at, I was at school and in a geography class, which was not my favorite subject. And I was so bored. I was looking out into the window um, into the sun, trying to blind myself or something to sort of entertain myself. And that was the first sort of, I think the first time I remember talking to myself in terms of, you know, what the hell are you doing? Mm. And what is this life thing really going to be? Um, because it's suddenly sort of started to play out in the rest of my head. You know, I'm supposed to finish school like my parents told me to, and then I'm supposed to go to varsity and start at the bottom of another system. And it was always bizarre to me. I was 18 and the top of one system, and then I'm 19 the next day at the bottom of another system. And the world just seemed very confusing. Yeah. Um, and I was supposed to do my four years there, and then I was supposed to join another big corporate system. Um, and it just felt like I was going to be playing these games for the rest of my life. And I was like, you know, when do I stop playing someone else's system? And when do I do my own system? Um, and I would say I probably tuned into those thoughts more and more over the years. I certainly had no idea that come the end of university would take me to this point. But um, I knew by the end of high school that I didn't know enough about myself and I was really wanting to explore these questions and I wanted to take a gap here, but that's not very popular with black parents. So university, I was to go. It's not popular with many, <laughs> many parents. <laughs> For some obvious reason. I don't Is know it? why. Can't work that one yeah, out. Yeah, look, I guess it worked out in the end, but I was pretty devastated at that point. I really wanted to stay home and watch TV. Um, but uh, my brother was at UCT at the time, and I, I told him, Mom and Dad said I have to come and study, so pick something. Because, yeah, I could do law or medicine or anything at this point. Um the world is that obscure to me. Um, and he picked a business science, computer science degree. Um, you know, I'd said, I don't want to do accounting or curial science. I'm tired of the clever stuff. And then he picked that and, you know, I didn't really have a contact. It sounded nice. Okay. A bit of technology. It's not like I was a techie in any way, shape or form, but, um, I was comfortable with computers, but no, not a techie at all. And got to my first lecture and start seeing code on the wall and terror running through your body. Um, and he largely, I'm sure, meant it as a joke. Um, and started looking at all these other options of what else I could study. Didn't really figure much out except that by the end of my first year, I decided I was going to stick with it because I felt like with accounting and marketing or psychology and all these other majors and actual science and what were the other majors at the time, um, finance and things, I thought you'd spent a lot of time <clears throat> looking at all the stuff other people have done. And with computer science, at least you were allowed to come up with an idea and actually create something. Mm. And you could inject something in reality that didn't exist before and none of the other subjects seem to have that ability so as horrendously difficult as i found it i decided to stick through it and um that certainly changed my life perspective um I think when you have to create, um, you have to force yourself to think and push really, really hard. Um, even in 
various learning methodologies, creation is sort of the highest level of, of understanding and knowledge and, and application. Um, so I think it was a really good program to do. And luckily I had some classmates who were also desperate to get out of the system by the time we finished and started chatting. You know, we're like, okay, what are we going to do so that we can tell our parents something so they don't kill us? And we decided, yeah, look, we'll start a company. <laughs> What's this company going to do? Okay, that's for the second meeting, guys. For now, we just decided we're going to start a company. And the second meeting, we started playing around with some ideas and looking at the whole cost of telecoms at the time. This is 2005 now. You have all these... uh You're starting to get um Wi-Fi and Bluetooth on your phones. 3G is starting to get more prevalent. Um, and we're like, you know, you should be able to make calls on your phone and not just Skype on your computer because who has time to hang out on your computer anyway? Um, and we started thinking about doing mobile voice over IP on mobile phones. And that was really the journey. And so that's where you started for it. Yeah. Work mobile, on mobile voice over IP stuff. And remember, this is the world before iPhone, the world before Android. It was a treacherous world software development wise. Yeah. Real pains. But um we managed to within a year um launch our first version um of Yego at Yego.com at the time. And surprisingly to us it was um there were maybe two other companies around the world that had launched a similar thing. So it was one of the earliest sort of mobile based voice over IP applications. And that's what really launched um our careers and yeah, been moving forward since then. <laughs> what uh, actually mm. happened with that startup? So Yego in 2009, 51% of it was acquired by Telfree. Um, we had initially wanted to focus like a Skype model consumer things, but it was not going to be sustainable. Remember, people didn't even pay for things on their mobile phones. And we had to try and shift to what we felt would be the SME market or the business market where it's easier to control the network quality and easier to collect money. Um, but we also didn't have the expertise in that space. None of us had worked in the company. Um, and on the other side of the coin, we also realized that we really need very good telecoms networks and partners. Um, and Telfree was one of the earliest, um, earlier voice of IP providers in South Africa when it was deregulated in 2005, six, and you had a whole lot of web operators. Um, so they were based here, um, the headquarters in, in Switzerland, and they had all the infrastructure connections with the operators. Um, but it was all on a, on a new age, next generation IP platform. And they would need the software to sit on top of it to actually for end users to be able to use and make calls. So the soft phone that sits on your computer, the soft phone that sits on your mobile phone. So they had none of that R&D capabilities. And we essentially brought that to the table. So it was quite a synergistic um, partnership. Learned a lot, um, worked together for about four years Um very good seven-year journey in all. Um, but in the end, it was, we were going so far into telecoms. Now we're becoming a real telecoms player, which is so far from software and product creation, mm -hmm. further away from we, where we wanted to end up, you know. Mm -hmm. And telecoms is quite a rough place still in South Africa. The regulators really only stepping up now, but it's been highly uncompetitive for a long, long time. So kind of got tired of that situation. It's funny, I went, whatever you start out with isn't actually what you wind up doing. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Suddenly we're learning all this network telecoms link go and it's like mm -mm. Mm -mm. telecoms mm -mm. <laughs> the other thing i want to say is the world seems to think that africans aren't innovative 
Yeah, it's hey. quite bizarre. Very, very bizarre. I mean, what was stunning for me is that in the early days of Jaeger, we managed to go on a trip in New York trying to raise funding. And there was a talk done by one of the Skype founders. I can't remember which one. And I asked him a question after his talk that why hasn't Skype, you know, pushed for mobile-based voice over IP? Um, and his response was something to the effect that, you know, the mobile operators won't like it. And besides, it's not that critical kind of thing. And it was such a stunning revelation to me that someone in his role would actually say that. Yeah. Um, and it just showed that, you know, your experiential wisdom, your perspective is the most valuable thing that you have. So whatever's happening out there, you, everyone has a unique world perspective that has incredible value. And I wouldn't have known that he thinks that. Mm. I would have imagined that he would want to go down mobile. But because he's not work, living in an environment where bandwidth is thin and no one hangs around on their computers to catch people on Skype, he wouldn't imagine that it's the primary interface should actually be mobile. And that was quite a bizarre revelation for me. Um, so yeah, we definitely have a huge potential for innovation because innovation comes from recognizing and having awareness of your own internal or your own world perspective and the belief that you can actually, that has value and you can apply it and bring something to the table based on that perspective. Yeah, um, Simon Dingle, I don't know if you know mm. Simon, so he was on the show and he said he basically summed it up. He said, all innovation comes from an itch that yes. needs to be scratched. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And I think that most people, um, most people don't realize that. And this is why awareness is such a big thing for me because the more self-aware you are, the more aware of what your viewpoints are, what you think is. And if you're, the, and then if you're aware of how the world works around you, you're also aware that whatever that viewpoint or perspective is, is actually not fixed. It's movable and it's something that you can manipulate. Whereas most people, I think, still operate from a perspective that it's a fixed thing and only a higher level of awareness allows you to shift that around and to believe that it can be something else and actually bank your whole life on it. Yeah. So let's stop and fast forward a few years mm. uh, to present day. You're now running, or I suppose, Rekindle Learning, right? Yeah. And, and obviously this is an educational tech play, right? Mm -hmm. So what are the headlines about that particular sure. startup? So, I mean, with this, with my second startup, I was obviously was always going to stay in tech because I think that's the only way we can scale solutions that can have a meaningful impact. Um, and learning tech has always been in the back of my mind, even at Diego, but we just never had time to really look at it. So, um, I try to follow my, my intuition. I'm like, look, this thing has been nagging at me for years. It's a really tough space. It's not, it's only becoming more fashionable now, but even then, it's not like there's funding available for it. It's not like it's easy to build a business in it, but I've just learned that, you know what, the business, there's, there's no easy business. If you think there's an easy business, you're sort of lying to yourself. Amen. <laughs> and you should do something because whatever business you do is going to take everything from you and come back for more after that. Um, so you might as well do it for something that gives you peace and you're happy for it to take everything you have. Yeah, I suppose um, you have to have that. <laughs> Whatever you do has got to literally be that thing. Otherwise, yes. you're not going to make it. Yeah, you won't. It won't make sense. There's no mm. amount of money that will help you to suffer through those 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 low points and tough times when you don't know if you're growing, if it's the right market, if it's the right product. You've got to be. You've got to be in it for something much bigger than um, an easy business. Um, and 
so that's why I was like, okay, well, let me try beat my head on, on this issue. And essentially I wanted to take a different approach with, with e-learning or online learning. Most of what we understand about online learning, the way it's applied in companies, especially even still at universities is that, you know, you take your PDF file or your PowerPoint presentation, you host it on a shared drive or on some nice interface, Moodle or something. And, um, now that it's accessible everywhere, we call it e-learning. And <clears throat> so that's the first, you know, generation of e-learning, I think. And yes, it solves an important problem. It makes things more accessible. But access isn't actually the core of, of, of the future of learning until we actually define new learning methodologies or algorithms that help us learn faster or more efficiently. It's not dramatically different. We might as well just get better at printing books. Mm. Um, and access alone isn't sufficient. We actually have to change the learning pedagogies around the things we do. So I wanted to, the first project, or so first product that we've rolled out is essentially a micro-learning um, app on your phone or web. And all it is is essentially takes an approach of bite-sized um, steps of learning. So maybe if you are, for example, one of our clients is one of the banks here, and they would do typically a lot of compliance training, those thick, ugly manuals of 200 pages, you put people in a workshop for one day and then you give them this manual afterwards and you hope for the best they're going to read it. It's amazing We stuff. all know <laughs> that's never going to happen. <laughs> and all they do is have a register that 30 people came for training. Therefore, we've met our compliance obligations, but you've got no cooking clue about who knows what, what they've retained from that one day, what they've retained a month later, nothing. Um, so essentially... Hours can be blended into this and in that, you know, you can face to face will always have some kind of value for, especially maybe you're learning a new concept and to set some scene and context. But essentially then they can do all the detailed learning on, on the app and it's mainly question based. So it's almost like a flashcard that you go through and asks you questions and it's quite adaptive. So it tracks the questions you're getting wrong and right and brings you back to the ones that you get wrong more often than the ones you get right. And you just, and it just keeps prompting you to keep learning until you demonstrate that you've actually retained the material. So even though it's not, even though it's questions, it's not a quiz that you go from one to 20 and pass or fail. Questions are used more as a learning tool as more than a penalizing tool, essentially. Yeah. Just a question on the content itself. Are yeah. you doing mathematics, science, boring geography? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, biology, history, that kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. you're basically replicating the same uh, educational material that you'd find in kind of legacy yeah, institutions. Exactly. So typically yeah. uh, with our clients, they have, we take that 200-page manual and create micro-learning steps from it that are question-based mm -hmm. and interactive. So whatever material it is, you generally can work with it. Um, most popular here has been a lot more compliance product and sales training in companies. But also in the education sector, you can apply it to um, maths or biology or history. In the education sector, the way I would position it is that you still want to have a classroom engagement. Um, but essentially, you can use the tool when maybe you have your tutorial or homework sessions to reinforce everything that is sort of presented in class. And that generates data as to what you struggled with and didn't. And the teacher can see that um, and know what to better target or focus on the next day. Um, and because learners can now do reinforcement and essential facts, basic rules and simple application of knowledge retention on those kind of apps, it means you can use your classroom time for more complex things that you can't get to if you're still trying to get people to remember what the log rules were. Do you think that the classroom environment is on its way out? Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. I'm not that um, extremist, no. I don't think so. I think there's a whole lot of other learning um, activities that happen in a classroom, whether it's teamwork, confidence building, communication skills. Um, those will still be critical. What I think will be important is how is how we shift what happens and the content we cover in classrooms. I think the basic... In, in, in the South African education system, there's four cognitive levels in, in when you study a subject. The first one is just simple facts and rules. The second one um, could be simple application of those rules. The third level is complex application of those rules. And the fourth level is the problem solving that we all want to think our students get to. Um, but if you actually look at the most curriculums below um, standard, I mean, matric and things, most of the content is actually level one, two, and a bit of three. Various 10% is like the problem-solving component. So when people are failing, they're failing on retention of core principles and simple application of core principles. So in my mind, you should be using these kind of tools to get that stuff done and dusted. A computer can provide more adequate reinforcement than a human being can for 25 learners any given day. Mm. Just a silly question. When you were yeah. 14 looking out the, uh, the classroom window trying <laughs> yeah. to escape your 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 um, your nightmarish geography <laughs> lesson. <laughs> yeah. And we can all relate. We've all been there. Um, I mean, like, at any point, when, like, like, were you ever exposed to entrepreneurship? Mm, no, I would not say I was. I mean, I think at high school we had one of those courses where you've got to do like cake sales and we, I made fudge with a friend of mine. We ate most of the fudge we ate. I mean, we made... Home economics. Um, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't that, think it was called. I don't know what it was called. That's the classroom you go to to bunk all the others. <laughs> yeah, um... But no, I wouldn't say that I thought I was ever going to be an entrepreneur until probably the last six months of university. Mm. No, mm. it wasn't something I grew up with. My parents only became entrepreneurs much later in my life as well. So it's not like I grew up with it. Yeah, because it seems to be a, a common theme that I've kind of picked up on. Manus, mm. uh, Brett and myself were talking about the yeah. same thing. And he was saying how it's because I asked him, what is one injustice that you see? And he's like, well, you know, today mm. in today's world, entrepreneurship is the only choice really you know yeah. unless you're like a rocket scientist <laughs> and you know you're going to go to mars one day um and then um cheaper mm. was another one also talking about the same thing wasn't mm. exposed to entrepreneurship i mm. was i definitely wasn't exposed yes, to entre entrepreneurship yes, outside yes. of my father you know what i mean and so my question to you mm. is if you have this amazing software and this technology that can enable um the um, the learning process to speed up effectively mm. and it does all the things like recall and all the kind of cool things that you go mm. to school yes. traditionally to do. Yes. Um, are you <clears throat> producing entrepreneur-focused uh, content 
as part of the proposition as well? Not yet, not yet. So for me, entrepreneurship, leadership, those kind of things are a lot more behavioral and mindset. And I don't believe I've seen something digital yet that can actually teach at that level. If you think about it, all the things that examples I've told you are functional knowledge. Mm. Um, it's, it's domain knowledge. When you start trying to shift mindsets and behavioral stuff, it's, it's actually something else. And I don't, I'm hoping that as I understand more about this area, I'll figure it out. But I am not comfortable that there is a solution offline that I can capture into a digital technology and deliver just yet. I am doing exploring things. So I've done a very interesting leadership or sort of course last year on occupational intelligence by a lady called Vivian Schultz. And there she has one of the simplest methodologies I've ever seen as to how to progress a human being from the dependence you start off as a child to the independence and um, internal locus of control that you have in a, an entrepreneur like a Raymond Ackerman or an, in, and an Elon Musk. And she essentially grades um, you can sort of, um, yeah, grade people essentially on their locus of control. And by locus of control, I mean that if you have an external locus of control, you generally believe that life is happening to you. Mm. Um, and it just sort of comes about and your lot is your lot. And that's about it. And if you're an internal locus of control, you believe you're directing your life. Cause and effect, basically. I suppose that you only get two types of people. You always get, <laughs> well, maybe you get one, I suppose we all, you know, kind of meander from one side to the other. Yeah, but you yeah definitely- no, and this is, this is the thing, in fact, especially this is the thing with her methodology is that you're never truly, you're never um, entirely independent and internal loss of control on everything. Mm. It's all about specific tasks. Mm. So I may be very good at um, analyzing learning software, but if I have to go and um, draft a um, an, an investment document for a private equity company, I don't know what I'm doing. So it's always task specific. And this is, this is why her methodology is so interesting is that when you need to look at tasks and grade the complexity of tasks and how you get people past certain points of complexity Mm. um, and look at it that way as opposed to thinking some people are born great some people are not born great it's all about having had the right stimulus at the right time for that particular task so that's that's what's very interesting about what she does and she demystifies a lot and having gone through that course I am more appreciative than ever as to how hard it is to develop the human mind and how long it takes so that's why I haven't jumped into online programs for that. Yeah. Um, I was interviewing Ryan Neur, the CEO of Punk Media yesterday. Mm. And we we're having this big ass debate about whether agencies would exist in the future. Uh, um, and so as part that. of that debate, he was talking to me about how he speaks at conferences and he always says, you know, he puts his, there's a hundred kids in the room and he says, look, um, how many of you want to work for agencies? And he's like, well, 10 hands go up. And then he said, but how many of you want to work for corporates? And like 90 hands go up. And I, I found that fascinating because then I said to him, but did you ask him how many of you want to be entrepreneurs? Yes. And he said, no, he didn't. But he says every time he, he does a talk, he gets these kids that come up to him and go, mm-hmm. hey, man, I have this idea. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. There'll yeah. always be, I have this idea. <laughs> yeah. And so, and I, th- I think that's the spark that you need. Right, because I think there is the the stimuli as you described mm, and the mm, mm, mm. the task driven inputs that Inter- you need yeah. for people to overcome certain things. But I think when you're talking about the paradigm of entrepreneurship, um, it, I think you know as well as you know, I guess um, that if you never ask the right questions, you're never going to get the right answers. Yeah, and yeah. I just have this thought that I wanted to run past you. Mm. I did this podcast a few episodes ago called "The School of Disruption" because. Mm-hmm. 
I've been in and out of corporates for a long, long time, uh, starting businesses and then you know going back into corporates, consulting and so forth. And I think a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs get stuck. And so they, everyone has an idea. And as you know, ideas are only as good as the execution. Yeah. But also sure. I think they're, they're, I'm interested to explore with you whether there is a way. So this whole thing is called mm, disruption. There's mm, 40 mm, questions mm. Yes. that are designed to get the spark focused into oh, a flame. Really? Okay. So that you're then able to execute on Ignites something. because you have a, and move forward. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. There's probably a lot of parallels between that and, and what this lady's methodology is because it's all about sparking I'm giving a task to someone um, at, and pitching it at the right level of the ability to respond at that point in time. So mm. if you give them too big a task, their anxiety overwhelms them and they can't deliver. But if you pitch a task at the right level of their responsiveness in that particular challenge, the more likely they are to have a positive experience and then they can progress up to more complex tasks. So I, it sounds quite similar yep. to that. What are your thoughts on the informal learning space? Mm. When you say informal learning, like for children or for adults? All of it. Podcasts, a great example oh, of informal learning. Yes, so for instance, yes. so let's, this is a classic case. We're talking mm. about entrepreneurship and technology and education and apps and, you know, innovation, African innovation, all these things. Yes. Now, if I could create out of all the podcasts that I've had, something called the informal learning MBA. Interesting. Yeah. You see, yeah. and so... I mean, it's basically having students or teachers such as yourself in the room that and they can learn at their own pace. And so, and it's such a growing category. And I wanted to just pick your brain. Like, I what think the content is definitely growing a lot in that category. My worry from my experience is that, especially in my experience in the, the two, three years with Rekindle Learning is that I've seen that people don't do what's good for them. People will do what they're incentivized to do. The vast majority of the people that complete the edX and Coursera courses are a fraction of those that can start and are already highly motivated, self-effective, like highly personally effective people. The vast majority won't get through that unless they're incentivized to do so, unless there's a process and there's an ecosystem pushing them through it. Mm. So I wonder... Um, how relevant it is right now because I feel like it will most likely service at a top end or upper end of a market which is not where the need is right now. That's that's my experience. Okay, I totally agree with you because mm. it's funny. Uh, another guy that I've had on the show twice, Bruce, he actually lived in Kyalicha mm. as he was a white guy living in a, a black township and, and this was just after 94. So he did it because he was also trying to unlearn, you know, mm. and, you know, long story short, the landmark forum. I don't know whether you yes, know, yes, you stand up in front of a room of like 300 people and you say, I'm going to do this because I think this, or I need to conquer these beliefs or whatever. And his whole thing was he was a racist. Mm. So he went and he lived in Kailicha. He had to go and do that thing. Mm. And what he was de describing to me, and this made like international news and all sorts of crazy things. But basically he made the point to me that people were coming up to him and going and asking for money. Mm. And he said, dude, if I, I can't just give you money because then I have to give the next guy and the next guy and the next guy. But what I will teach you to do is how to start a business. So he said that these guys, they were like, cool, let's do it. You know, I'm all open to doing it. And to pick up on your points about incentives, mm. he said that of, of the 50 or so um, individuals that he helped to start a business mm. or just to educate them about how to do it, only one actually did. Mm, mm, mm. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm not surprised. And 
why I want to come back to that framework of the occupation intelligence is that what I became very clear on is that often people that are already successful or highly effective in themselves and have that internal locus of control, we are deeply unaware of the journey we have traveled to get there. And we think it's, it was just hard work and that's, but you, we don't know all the stimulus that actually helped us to get to that point. So then when we try and set up a program to push other people along, we actually don't know how to stimulate them mm. to that point. And we think that we almost think that everybody else is like us mm. and thinking like us and in our space. So, yeah, I, mean, because, I mean, I've given you this opportunity. I've given you the 50 rands to start the business. Why can't you just yeah, do it? Because everybody's going to be mean, an entrepreneur. Hard, man. What's wrong? <laughs> <laughs> but that's terribly flawed approach. Yeah. Terribly flawed approach. And so that's, true. yeah, that's we, so true. we are deeply unaware of how we got there. Us most successful people, they just say, I worked hard and everybody else can work hard. Mm. And only after unpacking all of these things, and especially if even to help you give, understand this perspective, I'm saying that the book Blink by Malcolm Gladwell talks a lot about the unconscious advantages that have accumulated in your life that you are wholly unaware of. And highly successful people are the most guilty of creating ecosystems of dependence because they don't know how to stimulate people to the extent they were and to get them to that point. Fascinating. So what incentives will work? Sure. I mean, it depends on the task. And this is, I'm still just, a student. Just lay them out. I'm I know still a student idea. of this methodology <laughs> as well. But this is what I'm trying to understand so that I know... I know how to, one, do it in real life and then ultimately build digital tools that can sort of support it. Um, <clears throat> but what I'll say, for example, in, in one of the exercises is that one of the things that we did in the program um, was one of the days was on a farm environment. And to help us understand the element of fear in our brain, we were doing all these crazy tasks, you know, like welding and rowing in the middle of a dam and and whatever and um one of the things that frightened me the most was having to catch this bunny a bunny and a bunny and in like my a mind, bunny rabbit yeah bunny rabbit like it's a, it's a real bunny field, a real bunny you're trying to run after it and catch it and i was absolutely terrified of the notion because and i ca and and she was recording you know this and um, and later we unpack it and I was going and I had all these very intelligent rationales about why we should not be chasing this poor bunny. We're terrifying it. It's scared. It's stupid to do to do this. Reminds me of that scene from <laughs> Lockstock. I think it was a snatch. Does the bunny get fucked? <laughs> yeah. Does he get fucked or proper no. fucked? <laughs> So did you catch you know, the bunny? So I, I didn't. Somebody else caught it. My other teammate caught it. But then we still all had to hold it. And I still didn't want to hold it. And, you know, eventually they forced it upon me and they forced me past my point of fear. And I could now hold this bunny and get past okay. that. And then I could unpack what happened in my own brain so that you start to understand how incredibly powerful the anxiety and your reptilian or primitive brain can be that you can be totally convinced of something and you can come up with the most, the more intelligent and educated you are, you will come up with the most intelligent rationales about mm. why you shouldn't do something. Mm. And it just opens your mind to, wow, that's actually how my brain works. Yeah. So that, that's an example of things you do to stimulate you so that next time you're in the situation of I can't it's like mm, really yeah it's like that <laughs> I mean it's uh, I, I suppose another mm. example I could probably share from my own life is yeah. every time I've had to make a really really difficult or big decision that's going to impact myself 
uh, mm. primarily in a major way or, or even in, in, you know, severe instances, other yes. people like now I'm a dad and so oh, everything wow. I do now yeah, yeah, affects yeah. them, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I don't know who gave this piece of advice to me. It's like if you have a really big decision to make, you basically take out a piece of paper, mm. put a line on the middle. And Pros you go, and r- write all the reasons why you should do something. And mm. then to your point, all the reasons why you shouldn't. Yes. And if the one side's longer than the other, then you know what your thing. But this is a, cla- it's a simple exercise, but it pulls out all those unconscious yeah, yeah. things, right? Yeah, that are yeah, sitting yeah. in your head. And, and to your point, defining consciously how you make decisions. Right? Yes, yes. Yeah. So that will help. That will help. But you're still only unearthing your conscious things by virtue of the fact that you're writing it down. There's a whole lot of other unconscious oh, things. No. That, that are also driving your view of the world. And that's, that's a lot harder to understand. So anyway, fascinating journey. So like I said, when I've understood that in real life, then I can think about a technology solution around entrepreneurship and leadership training. Okay. Mm. I want to talk to you. You're obviously speaking a lot mm. uh, on the uh, professional speaking circuit. Are you speaking overseas a lot as well? Every now and again, I will. Um, I, I mean, I was lucky enough to go to Colombia last year, Cartagena, one of the wow. beautiful coastal towns there. Um, it used to be a big trading port, one of the most stunning cities really in South America. Fabulous food, even better wine and cocktails. Um, And it was for a conference around business or um, outsourcing in the core center environment. Um, And basically they were, they have similar problems to and challenges to South Africa. Um, Historically, um, black people are marginalized and out of economic opportunities there. So they were really trying to bring someone from a context like South Africa, like theirs to speak and inspire sort of young people there. So it was a, it was a really illuminating experience. I had no idea there were so many similar challenges all the way sort of in Colombia. Mm-hmm. Um, and also got to explore a beautiful city. So every now and again, there'll be gems like that. Yeah. Um, was also lucky to go to Kigali, Rwanda as well last year um, for the World Economic Forum event um, and also interviewed um, the president of Rwanda, um, Paul Kagame, which was an extraordinary experience. For a podcast um, or... No, no, no. <laughs> I wish. Well, why not? I wish for a private podcast. Um, but I think the video is online somewhere. <laughs> you only do video. <laughs> you don't no, slam I it down a podcast. a podcast any day as well. Yeah. Um, that was fascinating, though. Yeah. So, really, uh, just really. two obvious questions for me. Um, mm. What were you? What was your subject in Colombia? Sure. So a subject in Colombia was primarily around learning technologies and how they oh. can be used in for training and upskilling of young people in the core center environment so that you can make them more competent faster and, and reduce that sort of time to competency. So yeah, typically I'll either talk about learning technologies that companies could use or um, universities can use um, now that we're launching our first university product, or I'll do a general talk on my journey around and sort of, I call it inside innovation and entrepreneurship. And I talk about my journey of greater self-discovery and awareness that prompted me to start a business and how I believe it was critical to developing business traits like the ability to be innovative or to take risks. I think those kind of things are actually deeply tied to how well you understand yourself and how aware you are of the things you see, your perspectives and the world around you. Mm. And what was it like interviewing Mm. Paul? I mean, sure. He is quite an extraordinary man. I mean, if you've been to Rwanda, it's a really beautiful country, the greenest, most luscious views everywhere. Um, and in, Impeccably clean, cleaner than so many European and American cities really? I've been to. 
impeccable. Wow. Um, and, you know, one of the first questions I asked him was that, is this part of a social engineering exercise? This standard of cleanliness is, is unreal. I mean, not even graffiti. You're joking. There's nothing. How does he, how do you pull and, that off? You know, and yeah, so this is, this is, and he was like, it's, it certainly is part of that um, social engineering because we want, there's so many things that Rwanda needs in terms of trading partners and aid and whatever else is. We wanted to embed in our people that there are things they can do for themselves. And cleanliness is number one, something they can do for themselves. And then I think once a week or once a month, people get together in a group and go through the city and clean up any rubbish they see. Um, and it's very much, I think, one of the activities he drives to build, um, to empower people that they can do things for themselves and not to sit back. I've never interviewed a president. <laughs> You'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm fascinated to know how you prepared for that. Sure. So because it was um, part of the World Economic Forum thing, they already have a pretty set structure and his um, own team wants to, has also has a very clear structure on what can't and can't be asked. Um, so really I had to set the scene, I think maybe initial four or five questions and then there was a whole group of people who wanted to ask questions. So, oh, so then I was facilitate, yeah, then I was okay. facilitating those questions and what have you. Um, so canvassed a whole lot of questions from what people would have wanted to hear. Um, obviously one of those was around his, um, the, the neural or extension of his term and things like that. So it was, it's not hard to come up with four questions to start the conversation. So how, how, would, uh, how, how long was the interview? Was it? It was about an hour. Yeah. Really? Mm. Sure. That's crazy. Yeah. And then, and then on top of that, you get briefed, Hey, uh, listen, you can't talk about this. Yeah. You can't so talk about exactly. that. You can talk about this Yes. or that thing yes. that you can't talk yes. about, but only in this yeah, way. For this topic, this is how we're going to handle it. Yeah. And this is how you're going to lead into okay. it. Alrighty. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, uh, what was, was there anything mm. that when you look back at that time mm. with him and, mm. Does something jump for you as like a completely amazing answer or insight that he shared or was um, it not that kind of interview? No, it, it was. There was so much for me. For What I think was is remarkable for me um, is, you know, I think a lot of Western media vilifies, has vilified um, Kagame to a large extent. And when you listen to him speak, there's very clear thought processes that have gone through there. And it's very clear that he's doing everything with the mandate of his cabinet, with the mandate of his people. So who are we to then call Rwandans and say, you're not allowed to extend your president's term? Which yeah. truth is that, you know, and for me, it was speaking to him and seeing him as a one on one and it, it, like sitting with him on a boardroom, you, there's nothing illegitimate in what he was saying. And I often wonder how often we misinterpret um, presidents simply because it doesn't suit um, Western media advantages to position them in a positive light. By the way, I think uh, that's a common thing. I mean, mm. Manus is nothing like he is on TV. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. he's just the world's <laughs> loveliest guy from the free state. Do you know what yeah. I mean? But on, the, but on the shark tank, he's like, oh my god, yeah, like, you yeah, know, yeah, don't, yeah, don't mess exactly. up your pitch, otherwise yes, you're gonna lose yes. a shark. Because you must remember, meters, you're, you're, you're telling a story, and you're a character, and there's a plot that they want you to play, and that's it. And they're polar opposites, eh? <laughs> like really. Yeah. So I mean, I've asked you the question. Mm. You're always in the media, I guess. Uh, so thanks again for being here. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But I mean, how are you? often misinterpreted or misviewed, do you think? I think that most people will probably think that I'm very, um, maybe I'm stiff or 
must Stiff. be very aggressive or must be very um I don't know, emotionally devoid or something. I'm not sure. But I I, I think that might be what, what, what the media comes off as, um, or impressions come off as. Um you know, and it's it's not necessarily true. I, I am certainly very particular and have high standards of excellence. But I, I most of the time when people meet me face to face, one, they think I look very different. Two, um I I seem like a normal person to them. So you are yeah. normal person. I didn't, I didn't <laughs> so, yeah, we'll we'll often get that feedback. Yeah. Most of the time they'll say the pictures make me look older and yeah. They and you know they'll think often when I even arrive at an event, I don't know maybe because I look young. No one they actually don't know I'm the speaker, and you know, and I'll just be standing in a corner and no one's really helping me. And eventually they figure out, oh, this is yeah. our speaker. Oh, and snap. then suddenly they change how they treat me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's quite funny. Yeah, it is funny. How I mean, do you think media the role the role of media and how you've used media has mm. contributed significantly to your business successes? Sure, I think my the brand has certainly helped me a, a long, long way, and I can't imagine um, it would have taken me or been been so helpful. You know, because networking and meeting people can take you so far. Um, a brand a brand speaks for you in a in rooms you're not in. A personal brand is what yeah, you yeah a personal yeah. brand. Um, and all a number of the opportunities I've gotten through the World Economic Forum, World Entrepreneurship Forum, these are highly unsolicited. Like never, and it's just an inbox that lands, an email that lands in my inbox and that's it and somewhere somehow some conversation in some room with people i will never know Mm. this happens and that's really comes down to brand value um so i think it's been really instrumental in that and i've initially was quite i'm reluctant and didn't like it a lot but now i've just come to appreciate you know it's it's my form of social capital i if if i'd grown up in another context my parents might be big business tycoons and i would be able to access things for in other ways but this is my social capital and you need every advantage that you can get in life yeah um have you ever made any media boo-boos you know, I, I was very well trained from the start. I must have done at least two or three media training sessions right at the beginning of Diego. And now I've got so much experience. Um, boo-boos on the radio. Because um, you know I've met about three already on this episode. So, Oh, really? You mean, <laughs> tell me, let's stop now and redo it. I think there was a time when I was on a radio interview and... I and the sort of person interviewing me wasn't very well prepared and I got quite irritated with it because they then began to direct a question at me that was meant for the and there was there were three guests that was meant for the other guests which I was obviously couldn't answer because I knew nothing about and I was like that sounds you know very interesting and but I'm sure they can answer that question (laughs) and I think my irritation sort of came through (laughs) and and definitely doesn't sound good or right attitude to have on on radio (laughs) So, I mean, do you think entrepreneurs should go for media training period? I mean, like when you start out or everyone, I think if it's, if it's, if it's something that you can be good at, leverage it because, um, advertising and marketing is expensive. I certainly don't do, I, I get most of my exposure with PR and speaking engagements and that opens business development opportunities. So I think that holds a lot of value in and of itself. Um, and if, Expressing yourself is something that you can do well. Leverage it. Um, the media is content starved all the time. If you're a good writer, 
write opinion pieces and offer them to journalists. Or if you're a good speaker, speak. Or if you are very good at commenting on the budget speech, comment. It's they're always thirsty for experts with useful insights. Um, and you can get your name out there for, for nothing if you're mm. prepared to express yourself. That point you made there about media is content starved. Mm. What, what do you mean by that? I'm fascinated by that. Um, I, would have, I, would have, I always find, I, I would imagine, but maybe traditional media, the print publications, especially business uh, um, and yeah, typical industry and, and business publications online and print. I always find that because I'm in the media profile, they're coming after me for content. Don't you want to contribute to this? I'm like, no, not really. <laughs> but but because I've put myself out there, they don't know where to find people that are interested in contributing because most people haven't put themselves out there. That's so true, hey. That is true. They, they actually don't. They don't start. Mm, yeah. You know, I mean, because I, <laughs> I promise you, if I didn't start and I'm, and I've, and like we're talking before we yes, started, like yes. you know, a year ago, I started this thing. Mm. But if I, and like, I honestly didn't know what I was doing and I could have just canned it all in. Yes. But oftentimes people just keep thinking about starting and they don't actually push the go button. Precisely. You know? Precisely. And I mean, what we think that there's a lot of content out there, but how many young people commented on the state of the nation address in a publication? Don't you think the media houses were probably looking for something and they yeah. got, they didn't know where to look because no one's put up the hand. Vincent McGuinia, if you are <laughs> listening, uh, <laughs> we missed that one. Yeah. So, so while yes, there's lots of people doing Twitter and Instagram and Facebook or whatever else, they're not responding to business issues, industry issues. They're not. And the, the trick with um, getting involved there is to not try create your own momentum, respond to the conversations that are happening already. Yeah, rather than try and make your own conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So mm. I wanted to ask you. Mm. So I'm again looking at this rap sheet of yours, <laughs> <laughs> and it's just incredible. And obviously, not getting to know you, I would probably regard you as a very highly successful citizen of Africa, mm. right? Yeah, I know. Wow. Um, but here's the question for you: What mm. do you, or to what do you attribute your mm. success? <laughs> I think I got all of the basic advantages, an excellent education, and I won the parent lottery of a lifetime, really. Um, I think because of my education, I had a an, an natural confidence, but also because um, my parents were so progressive, open-minded, and consistently learning, that I, both in their 60s, building businesses, they've evolved as people so many times, and I've had to watch that journey. I had no excuses to hold back. So I, my parents been incredible role models. And I remember reading a study that said, you know, um, there's a couple of factors that can direct your life um, and, and change it dramatically. Excellent parenting is one of them. Education is one of them. And a strong will is one of them. Um, and certainly for me, I think I did develop that strong will by being a lot more in touch with, with myself and what I wanted. I was not prepared to go through life by default and just wallow through it and get to the end peacefully. Um, it was very clear to me that if I was going to wake up in the morning, it had better be worth it. Otherwise, I want to stay home and watch TV and be, be at peace. But if I'm going to get up and do something, it's not because it's it's socially appropriate and what's required of me. It had to mean something to me. And that I've been very determined to make happen at all costs. 
Great answer. Are both your parents entrepreneurs? Yes, now they are. They started as public servants um, when we was initially growing up in, in Botswana and then early 90s, um, they started working here. Um, my dad's an architect, my mom's an engineer, but now she's more of a farm um, farmer. So she, she runs a farm, cattle and sheep and uh, lots of produce and agricultural stuff. Um, and in a way, she's been a maverick. So my dad's consistently always been an architect. My mother has done everything under the sun. Amazing. So, And, and yeah. was it your mom and your dad, do you think, mm. I mean, which one was more influential over you when it came to entrepreneurship? Um, it's really hard to say. I, it's, they, they both gave me very different things along my journey. Um, my dad was always very good at having deeply thoughtful conversations with me. So, I mean, I remember when I was telling them that I, I don't want to go join this big four auditing firm or professional services firm. Um, I'm done. I, I've, I've reached my cap of doing what I'm supposed to be you know, told to do. And this is it. I've done everything you've asked me to do at this point, but I stop here. Mm. And, um, and it's like, you know, but you should get the experience and it'll be good exposure and all of those good things. And I was like, yeah, I agree with you. But, um, can you, I remember asking, can you guarantee me that if I take this job, I will be happy and successful? And he says, no, I can't. I'm like, then dad, I'll rather take the chances on my own. Yeah. And what was his, was he kind of like supportive? Of then, it? then after that, and this is, you know, after months of battling with me to try and, you know, go work first, um, they gave me the wholehearted support. I mean, they, for all of the co-founders in Yego, our parents financed our food and rent. Um, and we just had a laptop and internet access to start with. If we didn't have that food and rent, we would not have been able to start. That support system is critical, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Super critical. Great. So, final part of the uh, interview, mm. some rapid fire questions. Ah, uh-huh. okay. So, here we go. If you could give a 20 minute TED talk, mm. I know you've done one already. Yes, I have. Uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> what I'm saying. <laughs> okay, but okay. Mm-hmm. Rephrase. <clears throat> if you had a classroom mm-hmm. full of the brightest minds mm-hmm. in Africa, right? Mm-hmm. 0.01% of the brightest minds. And I said, here's a classroom for you, full of these yeah. kids. What would you teach them? Or what would you talk to them about to encourage them to become entrepreneurs? I would definitely talk through the journey of self-discovery and greater awareness. I think there's a huge pool of huge pool of very, very smart people who don't know what to do. And we see them everywhere in companies and certainly amongst my friends. Um, and I attribute that to a lack of connection with 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 themselves or a deeper sense of self um and that that's where you get it from that's certainly that's where i get my clarity about life and drive from i am a lot more in tune with who i am and what i'm prepared to spend my life doing and i think if and some courses call it personal mastery i'm still not entirely sure what it is but i would talk a great deal about how greater self-awareness is the key to even being able to take risks um i talk about how um your ability to take risks really depends on how strongly anchored you are in one or two pillars if you don't if you don't have an anchor in anything um you've got to hold on to everything then you become risk averse because you can't give up anything if you don't have your stick in the ground for something. So all of these things come down to clarity of self. 
Um, and I would say that's a big, big part of what we don't talk about in education systems anyway. Um, and we leave education to being a very mental process where it's deeply um, emotional and psychological as well. What keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night is how this continent becomes a world leader and we stop being at the bottom of the economic pile. And uh, what advice would you give yourself as a 20-year-old about becoming self-aware? Um, <clears throat> do a lot more challenging things. The more st stimulated you are, the more you will have to question yourself about what, how you're responding to things. If you could put your story onto a billboard, mm -hmm. what would that billboard say? You are the innovation. Yeah. Nice. Uh, when you hear the word successful, who do you think of and why? Whew. Who do I think of? Shucks. I've never been good at having a role model person in my head, to be honest. And I've, I, I don't even have a standard role model per se. Huh. I don't know. I, there's no particular face in mind. I would say that it's someone who can choose how they spend that time. Yes, great. Let's do what you want to do when you want to do it. That's uh, been saying that for years. Haven't mm -hmm. quite got there yet. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Without any financial or social pressure, someone who can choose how they spend that time is the most successful. Yeah. Uh, when you hear the word punchable, who do you think of? <sighs> Trump. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is one great injustice that you see in the world? The great injustice that we see in the world. Sure, there are so, so many. I would say violence against women is for me one of the most horrid injustices that continues to perpetrate um, this world. Yeah. If you could have dinner with three people, alive or dead, mm -hmm. who would you want to have dinner with? Elon Musk, Thabo Mbeki, and... Adolf Hitler. Mm -mm. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not him, not him. Um, who would the third person be? Hang on, hang on. It'll come to me. There is someone. I can't really remember her name now. Hmm. The... Okay, well, I'm going to ask you this. <laughs> I can't why, why Tabo and Becky and not Nelson Mandela, for instance? I'm a big fan of doers. And um, Mandela played a critical role providing the vision and the direction of things. But even during his presidency, Tabo and Becky was doing the doing. And I have a great deal of respect pe of people that can execute. Yeah. Um, what was the last book you read about business? Um, the best, the last book I, I'm reading now is um, Elon Musk's. Oh, book. really? Yes. Okay, which um, one? By the author, not his biography, because he hasn't written one. I forget the name of it, but it's a black cover with his face in the middle. Uh, I forget the name of the author. Maybe it's Sarah something. Okay. I'm not, I'm not too sure of it, but it seems it's the most popular one. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, that's the one I'm reading now. Mm, and then I'm, I keep rereading Lean Startup as well. Uh, yes, that's yeah, Eric, Eric Ries. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And which book have you gifted the most to someone else? I have gifted, I have gifted Lean In, Sheryl Sandberg, uh, A New Earth, Eckhart Tolle. Yeah, I read Probably that one. gifted those two books the most. 
Okay. Mm. Mostly because I'm, I think most of the people, my friends are very smart intellectually and it's much deeper issues that hold them back. Do you meditate? Yes, extensively. Really? Mm. What kind of meditation do you do? I've explored a lot of meditation styles. Um, always have worked with worked with a sort of coach for a few years while I was living in Cape Town before I moved to Joburg. Um, and the one I settled on the most is I'm not very good at the standard breath work um, meditation that is still driven by the mind largely. I use a concept called TRE. It's called, so it's not called meditation, but I treat it as meditation for myself. It's called TRE's trauma and tension release exercises. And it was done by a U.S psychologist or trauma psychologist or something like that but anyway um it's all about um rather meditating through the body and if your body comes to a peaceful place your mind will go along with it anyway whereas i find traditional meditation techniques is about telling your mind you know focus stop thinking breathe and i'm not i can't get very deep with that Mm. whereas i find i found the actually relaxing your body through these techniques that they do works quite well. But the gist of it is basically that um, well, if you've ever seen a child um, like really terrified and afterwards are now crying and they're shaking, those involuntary movements. Is that when they like can't breathe? Yeah. 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 And now when they, and then they're shaking a bit. So those involuntary movements is how they release stress. And it's the same thing animals in the wild do. But as we get older, that behavior is frowned upon. So we actually forget how to do, how to just involuntarily shake. Okay. Essentially. And all these techniques do is that you learn to let your muscles involuntarily release the stress. Or anything right. that's happened. So it's not has it doesn't have to be it's it's used a lot in armies and things for trauma, but it it's everyday stress. Traffic, being late for meetings, stressing with work, all of that anchors in your body somewhere. And you just use you that to, to get release it. Out. it. Yeah. yeah. So what a what's a typical mm. morning routine for you? Um start with exercise, well, what time do run you get or up? Pilates. What time do you get up? At five o'clock generally. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll start with a run or Pilates. Um and then probably um do a 15 minute meditation then and start working okay so 15 minute meditation is kind of yeah yeah yeah. yeah. and then i'll start working and then maybe after 10 try not to do any meetings before then i'll start moving when the traffic is done okay yeah last question for you Mm. what's your why why do you do what you do what gets you out of bed in the morning my why is that if i can just do something that moves society forward some uh, ticker that moves can progress us further than we were in my lifetime amazing Mm. thank you so much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure to have you you here on the digital kung fu show and yeah be excited to see you know when when you're going to challenge the klingons for (laughs) interstellar domination (laughs) small steps small steps Awesome. We're wishing you all the very best. You too. Thanks, eh? Ciao. Ciao, bye. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for listening to the Digital Kung Fu Show. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us. If you'd like more information on Digital Kung Fu, a full show notes listing on this particular episode, or would like to access our growing community of entrepreneurs, simply check out digitalkungfu.co.za and you can find us all over the social media graph. Until next time.
Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.